Okay, I'm going to open us with a prayer. Just bow your heads, please. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for the um, opportunity to worship together, Lord, that we're not under the threat of hurricane or bad weather. And we live in a free country, God, where we can worship you openly. We just thank you for that, God. Pray, open up our eyes, open up our hearts to what you want us, um, us to hear tonight, God. And thank you for who you are, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm Lori. Thank you, Lori, for saying that. Lori and I love Nehemiah. I don't know why, but Nehemiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I think because Nehemiah is such a good picture of a leader in the Old Testament, rich. And the book of Nehemiah is so rich with so many different lessons. Um, I'm starting a series tonight on Nehemiah. Next week, you don't want to miss it, Jackie Yates is going to come and teach on Nehemiah. Jackie! So that's going to be really fun. So I'm going to open us up with Nehemiah. We'll probably go a little slower tonight than maybe what I have in the past, so don't expect to get very far in this book. We'll probably get through the first two chapters, maybe. But I want to take this and do three or four sermons on Nehemiah because it is so rich. So you guys can hang with me, right? You're cool with that? Okay, so starting out with Nehemiah, we want, I want to start out with just a little bit of a history lesson. For those of you who are not familiar with Nehemiah or don't know the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the court of, ooh, I was going to remember this name, Artaxerxes. Ugh. Imagine a name like Artaxerxes, right, in the um, kingdom of Persia. So going backwards a little bit, let's start out with when, how did he get there? So when the... Um, Israelites conquered their promised land. They went into the promised land. That's when they, that was the birth of their nat nation, is when they came into the promised land. They became a nation at that time. They had disposed all the people out of that country. And eventually they cried out to the Lord and said, we want to have a king just like all the countries around us. Will you please give us a king? Which he did. It was Saul and then it was David. After that, there was kind of a civil war or a, a breaking apart of the country of Israel, and it broke apart into two different countries, kind of a northern country and a southern country. Kind of like if the civil war had succeeded here in the United States, we would have possibly a northern country and a southern country for the United States. That's the way it was for Israel. There was Israel was the northern country, Judah was the southern country. And um, in the northern country, pretty much every king was evil. Every king did evil, promoted idolatry, did, had evil practices, and the um, people really suffered under that kind of leadership. In the southern kingdom, it would be good king, bad king, good king, bad king. It kind of rotated through. But the thing is, God had said to Israel, I'm your God. You're to have no other gods before me. You're not to commit any kind of spiritual idolatry or adultery. You're supposed to follow my rules and my laws, and it will go good in the land with you if you do this. But the thing is, they didn't do that. And so God, through all the prophets, kept warning them, return back to me, return back to me. I'm, gonna, I'm your God. I'm the person who's chosen you, who's taken you out of, Israel, or out of Egypt. Return back to me. And, the, and the, both kingdoms really struggled with doing that. They really had a lot of pagan influences come in. And finally the Lord said, here's the deal. My favorite thing. Here's the deal. I'm going to allow the pagan countries around you to come in conquer you and disperse you throughout the land. That's going to be your consequence because there's a consequence to turning away from the Lord. 
And the consequence is you're going to be disciplined for a period of 70 years. There's going to be a time where you're dispersed. And so what happened is the first, the, the first country that that happened to was the northern country because they were technically the more evil country. And they were conquered and shipped off. What they did back in the ancient Near East those times was in order to kind of maintain control over your conquered areas, you moved people around a lot. So you'd move the people that were the officials and the royalty, you'd move them out of one place into the city, the capital city of the conquering nation. So a lot of, Daniel was one of them, got moved to Babylon. That's what happened to Daniel. And then you would take your people and put them in Jerusalem. And that way you kind of mixed up everyone's allegiances. They, weren't alle- they didn't have allegiance to the land because they didn't live there anymore. Now that they came, had allegiance to their new capital city. So the, the strategy of the conquering um, kings was to just move everybody around. You didn't get to stay in the home that you were raised in. You didn't, it would be like um, if, heaven forbid, Canada conquered us for some reason. <laughs> Let's just say Canada came in and um, came to Denver and said, all you people, we're going to move you up to Toronto, and that's going to be your new home. And we're going to take a bunch of our people up there that need need land and we're going to move them down here so that you would never really want to return back here because your new home was Toronto. Does that kind of make sense? So what we have is if the northern kingdom was conquered, it fell, all in, inhabitants dispersed, and then finally the southern kingdom, about a hundred years later, the same thing happened to, to it, and it was conquered, this time not by, um, they didn't go to Babylon because Um, The Persians now came in, and they were the ruling people of the time. And so this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a dispersed Jew. He's been raised in the capital city of Susa, all right? And he's serving, what did I say that guy's name was? Artaxerxes. What in the world? He's serving Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes as a cup bearer, cup bearer so that um, if someone was trying to poison the king, he'd get poisoned first. He would, he would test it and die first. He was the tester. What a horrible job, I guess. I don't know. And the, th- the thing that's kind of funny about that, too, all of these rulers that God used to discipline the Israelites were not godly rulers. They were pagan, um, pretty bad people, actually. They weren't necessarily good people. And in fact, I love this for my young friends, Artaxerxes, and probably Bob, you would like this too. Artaxerxes is supposedly the Persian leader that features in that movie 300 that went and conquered the Greeks. So that's Artaxerxes. And if you remember that movie, that did not depict him very well. Now, I'm not saying that's realistic, but that did not depict him as a very godly, nice person. Yet Artaxerxes is the man that God uses to restore Jerusalem. So what does that say for our leaders that we have? God can use anybody, right? God's on the throne. God is sovereign, and we don't need to worry quite so much about things sometimes, is my opinion. So here we've got Nehemiah in the court of Artaxerxes, and um, he gets this, he gets a, uh, a report back. For, he doesn't live in Jerusalem, but he gets a report back, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the pro- and back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here we've got a picture of um, Nehemiah. He's living his life being a, being a cupbearer, doing what he does. And he gets a report back and it, Jerusalem is in shambles. And it breaks his heart and he has compassion. Now one thing I want to point to here is that God, God made discipline, and he did discipline the Israelites for a time, but he always restores, and he always has a plan, and he's always moving on behalf of his people to restore his people. So one of the contemporaries of Nehemiah is Ezra. If you look at your notes here, at the very top you see Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Those are the three pagan rulers of about this time that had to do with conquering the Israelites. And there's three corresponding Jewish people that were um, used by God to bring restoration to um, Israel and to Jerusalem. The first one we see is, you like this? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. (laughs) Do you like that name? Cyrus permitted him to go back and begin the restoration of the temple. The second person is uh, Ezra. Ezra is a contemporary of Nehemiah. Darius there is the leader. And Ezra is permitted to go back and reestablish the religious practices. The temples now being rebuilt. Ezra goes back to help the people relearn what they've forgotten. Because they've been broken down for a long, long time. Everything's been dispersed. Nobody knows what they're doing. So Ezra goes back in a priestly fashion to teach everybody the ways of the Lord. And now we have uh, Nehemiah with Artaxerxes. Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls. So here's the story. I'm not going to read it to you. I'll just tell it to you. So he's standing there with his cup, and Artaxerxes sees him, and he has a downcast demeanor. He looks sad. And Artaxerxes says, what's going on with you? How come you're so sad? And he says, well, and Nehemiah says, how can I be okay? My people are in such disarray. What, what can I do? I'm so brokenhearted. And Artaxerxes, the man from the movie 300, who's not a godly man, who's not a Jew, who's the ruler of the whole land, he says, well, I tell you what, why don't you go back and I'll make you the governor of Jerusalem? And <laughs> Nehemiah says, okay, can I have wood to rebuild the temple door? Can I have wood um, beams to fix the wall? And will you give me letters so that I can travel safely back to Jerusalem? And all of that is granted to him. There's incredible favor on Nehemiah's life to get from his pagan, godless ruler what God had intended to bring restoration back to Jerusalem. I think that's really cool. And I think that's really hopeful because sometimes we only see with the eyes of the natural and God is doing things in the supernatural. With people that we think are beyond hope, and you know who I'm talking about right now, right? We th- <laughs> they're, right? There are people in high places 
in this country today that we don't have a lot of hope for because sometimes he acts real stupid. But do you know what? God is on his throne, and God can turn the head of Artaxerxes and Darius and Cyrus. He can turn the head of any man in government in our country. Right? That's an amen, people. So I want to segue now down to, I want to talk about walls. So what happened was the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it important to understand about the broken downness of walls? Why does God care about the walls of a city anyway? You know, I was watching um, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, one of my favorite movies of all time. And, you know, it's full of battle scenes and everything, and you've got these crazy orc-like things coming at them. And every single city, if it's going to survive, has to have a strong wall. Has to have a high wall, has to have a strong wall. Because the enemy comes with battering rams, comes with those little laddery things that you, that you go, ladder things that you come up. Comes with those trebuchets where it, it hurls um, those rock things and, and tears your walls on it. Walls are important both physically in the olden days and in our life today. Godly walls, thick walls, strong walls are important if we're going to survive what this world is throwing at us. Um, think of some, I was thinking of some walls that, you know, we have in our world. I was thinking of the Great Wall of China, which existed to keep the Huns out of China, right? That was a wall of protection. I was thinking of the Berlin Wall. Do you remember the Berlin Wall? Do you remember when the wall, that wall came down? That kind of served two purposes. One was to keep the East Germans in, and then one to protect the West Germans from the East Germans. I'm not really sure what that wall was doing there. But that wall, that was, can you think of any other walls in our day? What one? Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd the wall? Yeah, okay. Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, just so you know, this wall, the wall around Jerusalem, they calculate was two and a half miles long, almost 40 feet tall, and eight and a half feet thick. That's how big the wall was around Jerusalem, and that was what was needed to protect the city of Jerusalem. Because here's the thing, you guys. The way that God wants to restore people and the way that he was going to restore Jerusalem, it's a model for the way that he restores us. It's, it's a metaphor. The first thing is restoring the temple is important, which is for us the primacy of God in our life. God has to be on the throne in our life. If we're going to rebuild and restore the broken, we have to have God as the center of our life, and that's what the temple represented. Ezra, the practice of of that is the practice of the presence. How do we practice the presence of God in our life on an ongoing basis? How do we make this habitual? Does that make sense? It's one thing for God to be primary, but we have to participate and practice the presence every single day. But then the third thing is we have to have strong walls. We have to have strong walls around our life so that we can survive what's coming at us. And that was the three-pronged strategy that God has for restoring Jerusalem and he has for restoring us. The, the primacy of God in our life, the temple, the practice of God in our life, and the protection of God, the walls that, that are, are set in place around us. Now, I was trying to think of, 
you know, we think of walls sometimes as being negative, like, oh, they've built walls against me or something like that. And that's, you know, maybe a poor example, but it's when we, we push people out that need to be in. But what's an example of a healthy wall or a healthy boundary? Or what's, what are some healthy things that promote good walls around us? Can you guys think of anything? I did not know that. Okay. Give me some other examples of good walls in our lives. Well, boundaries are set in relationships. Is that okay? I even think of um, moral boundaries, right? Moral boundaries exist not to, um, not to prevent us from having fun, but to prevent the enemy from getting a foothold. Does that make sense? Can you think of any other um, examples of something like that? Ooh, that's a good one. Guardrails. So, so to prevent us, when we're crazy, they kind of bounce us back off the guardrails, right? Protect us from going off the edge. Right? Right? Anything else? The pool fence. Yes. A fence around a pool so that we don't act a pool fence. That's good. That's a good one. The second thing we have to do when we're talking about the walls in our own life, the good walls in our life, what God wants to do, we remember the temple, remember practicing the presence, and then we have to recognize the brokenness of our walls. If we're, gonna, if we're going to live an abundant life, if we're going to, and this, this is what I love about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a, a cupbearer, kind of a nobody, he had an assignment that came to him, and he rose up and he accepted that assignment. He had compassion. He had empathy for people he did not even know. It didn't say that was his family. It didn't say he had relatives. It was his people. And the Lord impressed on him such a heart of compassion and empathy that he accepted the assignment and went back to Jerusalem to do his part in this three-pronged restoration, which is to rebuild the walls. If we're going to be like Nehemiah, which is why I like Nehemiah, this is a call. Nehemiah is a call to how are we to live as Christians in this world. One of them is we have compassion. We have empathy. We accept our assignment when it's given to us, and we do something about it. So he gets what he needs from the king, from the ungodly king. He goes back to Jerusalem, and what he did was, before he even made a plan, he inspected the wall. He took, he went out on his horse at night, and he went around the wall and, ex- and ex- inspected where it was all broken down. If we're going to be like that, we have to inspect our walls. We have to inspect the walls of our own, our own personal walls. Where are they broken down? Where are they letting the enemy in? And we have to be able to inspect the walls of society and say, where is society broken down? Without a wall, this is, you know, from the internet, without a wall, no city in the ancient Near East was safe from bandits, gangs, and wild animals, even though the empire might be at peace. The more economically and culturally developed a city, the greater the value of things in the city, and the greater the need for the wall. The temple, with its rich decorations, would have been particularly at risk. Practically speaking, no wall means no city, 
and no city means no temple. Now, listen to this. Practically speaking, no wall means no city. No city means no temple. So in order for us to have God as the primary person in our life, we have to have safety and security. We have to have the ability to focus on the Lord. If we do not have our walls set up, we are so distracted by the spiritual warfare and the things coming against us, it takes our eyes off the primacy of the Lord. Does that make sense? We're not able to practice the presence. We're not able to focus on the Lord. We are so concerned about what's coming at us through the wall. We're in despair and we're in disgrace. This is why building up our walls, identifying the brokenness in our own walls and in the walls around us is important if we're going to do the work of the Lord. You know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, personal, we can all kind of identify ourselves in our own so in our own brokenness but I was thinking about our social brokenness and sometimes we don't like talking about this or sometimes we talk about it too much but I was trying to kind of think of some examples about some of our social brokenness and of course the one that came up to me just recently is everything that happened in Charlottesville right that was a horrible thing that happened there but it's a really good picture of what's broken in our country right and what needs to be healed and I was telling this I don't I think it was to Chris I don't know who I was telling or maybe David you know I don't, I don't believe that the government has the answers for the problems in our country. I think that the local church is the hope of the world, and Jesus Christ is the hope of men's hearts. And if we're going to address social brokenness, that's the first place we have to go. I'm not really sure that legislating anything really works in the long term. That's my opinion. But I, that to me is an example of the brokenness of our society that has to be addressed somehow. We have to have a burden for it somehow. We have to be like Nehemiah and look at that and say, that wall is broken, and my heart is broken because of that. And, it's, and my people are in disgrace. How do I go? What do I do? You know, the other thing, <laughs> David, you're going to love this. Okay. So um, when my kids were younger, we would have a lot of good discussions about things. And they wouldn't always believe me until they get older, and then they would say, you are 80% right, which I love. <laughs> I told you, I gave you a warning. So one, so one time we were having a discussion. I actually think this was Christian, not with David. We were having a discussion about um, governments and, you know, different kinds of democracy versus socialism versus communism and things like that. Oh, that was you? Oh, all right. And I said to my son, I said, here's the thing. It was both of you, okay. I said to my son, here's the thing. The reason that communism doesn't work isn't because, you know, they do economics different or they have a different kind of structure of authority. The reason communism doesn't work is because they absolutely do not believe in God and they actively discourage God from being worshipped in their country. I said, that's the problem with communism. It does has, it doesn't, I mean, there could other issues, but the number one problem is that God is not recognized in that government. That, you want to talk about a broken wall? That's a broken wall. That will let evil in. That is a wide open gaping hole to let the enemy in when you remove God from your government. Can I get an amen? amen. That goes, um, 
David and I were having a discussion about sacred versus secular. He's now in seminary, and so we talk about these kinds of things. And the sacred versus uh, secular argument is that some people think there is a separation between sacred and secular, that you have church and you have everything else, and you live your church life and then you do everything else. And really that was never the way that God intended it. If we look back to Israel, everything is sacred. There is no secular thing. Every single thing is connected to God. The government, everything stems from God. That's why communism doesn't work. Because when you remove God out of your government completely, atheism, you're in for a peck of trouble, a a lot of trouble. And so I love that sacred versus secular thing. We need to remember that every part of our life is sacred. Everything that we do, when we're working for a bank, when we're working for a church, when we're doing all our other jobs, those are sacred jobs, not secular jobs. Just like Nehemiah was a cupbearer, that was a sacred thing. <clears throat> Three, protect, protective walls require community participation. Have I been giving you your underlines? I'm so sorry. Number one, God cares about walls. Number two, recognizing brokenness, because I didn't leave it blank on my thing. Number three, protective walls require community participation. Nehemiah 4.16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Now here's the picture, you guys. So Nehemiah has come back. And he surveyed the wall, and he's seen where it's broken down. And back in those days, people lived with their, like, back wall. The back wall of their house was the wall. So they built their houses against the walls. Do you get the picture? So what would happen if the wall is broken down, it's actually that your house is kind of exposed. So not only could the enemy come in to attack the city, it could actually come into your house and attack you. So what Nehemiah said was every single person who lives adjacent to a wall you're responsible for that part of the wall. So every person in Jerusalem, every family in Jerusalem, began to rebuild the wall in front of them. Not somebody else's wall, just the wall in front of them. So the picture is we've got all these people building their wall in front of them, and the walls of Jerusalem are starting to be rebuilt. And it's freaking out the enemies all around Jerusalem. They're they're really... Like, what's going on? I can't believe this is getting restored. And they began, begin to send people to harass the people on the, that are rebuilding the wall. So what happens is Nehemiah says, okay, here's what's going to happen. Half of you people stand guard, and half of you build. And so half of them stood guard with swords, and then the other half built. And this is the picture that we need, you guys. We cannot rebuild our walls either for ourselves or society only by ourselves. We have to build the wall in front of us, what is our assignment personally and society, and, we ha- and other people, we have to link arms, and other people have to do it as well. That's why Bob's assignment of Celebrate Recovery, he's rebuilding the wall 
in people's lives for what he's been given to do. That's his section of the wall that he's been assigned to do. We all have an assignment. It can be in the church. It can be in the secular slash sacred, right? But we have all have a wall to rebuild. You know, um, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever heard of the seven mountains. Have you ever heard of that? There's the seven mountains is there seven different areas of influences in society. And, you know, now that I do mediation, I see the mountain of um, the legal mountain or legislative mountain or whatever you want to call it. And, you guys, there's not enough Christians there. There's hardly any Christians there. We need Christians in the legislative legal world to rebuild that wall. That part of the wall is real, real bad. It's real bad. We think there's justice there. There really isn't a lot sometimes. We need people wherever they're at to rebuild the wall where they're at. Whether it's in the schools, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the legal system, whether it's in business, arts, entertainment, whatever it's in, we have to have Christians rebuilding that wall. Good word. Um, different people are called to do different work. You know, some people are called to be the ones that are battling and others are builders. You know, we're not all called to do the same thing. We have to do what's in our wheelhouse and what's our assignment and be okay that other people are called to different things. And God's blessing is for the whole community. You know, I, these hurricanes are devastating and I and it's horrible what's happening, but what I love that comes out of this is when you see all these stories and these pictures about community coming together and helping each other unselfishly. It's, you see some of the most incredible things. I can think of the mattress king who opened up his uh, storeroom or his warehouse or whatever, and all these people came in and slept on his beds that he had in his um, display room, display area or whatever. And he was like, totally like come in and do what you got to do we'll have a sale afterwards you know gently use furniture or whatever you know then slight water damage then there's the the picture of the the boat after boat after boat after boat people from different states towing their boats down to texas so they can go rescue people just line just one line of boat after boat after boat of people waiting to get into texas so they can go help those people um, what was what was another one? I had another example. What are some other examples? Can you think of them in text of uh, rescue? Oh, this one, I love this one. Um, <laughs> it's the picture of a shelter, and there is uh, there are people inside the shelter, and spontaneously they rise up and start having a gospel choir. You saw that one in the middle of the shelter. You guys, that's what happens when community comes together. When community comes together, the strength is magnified. God is glorified. He can do great things when a community links arms to rebuild its walls. That's why we have to be intentional about, you know, in America, we're so conditioned to think that, well, I've got to pull myself up on my bootstraps, you know, and I have to do it by myself. I have to be independent. It's all about me, and I can't show any weakness. That is completely opposite of what God wants us to do. Completely opposite. God wants us to have healthy interdependence. Because when we depend on each other, when we bring our best gifts to each other, there is some kind of incredible satisfaction and joy that comes out 
with linking your arms with the other person and accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish. Do you agree? Yeah. There's, there's nothing like that. Like I said, I don't like seeing hurricanes, but I love seeing the best of humanity that shows up in those kind of disasters. I love that. And that's what God is calling us to do, is to say how there are disasters all around us, unfortunately. In our society, in our personal life, we've got to link our arms together, and we have to rebuild this wall so that we all, not just personally, but all of society can walk in the best that God has for us. But it's going to involve us recognizing our assignment having compassion for what God, what breaks God's hearts, and participating in that. Does that make sense? So here's my conclusion. One small cautionary word. Be careful of only focusing on the broken walls. Sometimes we can look at society and we get real discouraged by what's going on in society, right? Like we can either kind of fall on the in the ditch on both on either side of the road we can either be so consumed with social justice and what's going on in this world that we forget that our first thing is prime our primary goal our primary thing is the lord in our life that's our primary thing and so we get so we get so focused on the broken walls, we forget that, that God has a plan for restoring broken walls. And it's about God and not just the broken walls. Does that make sense? Um, I lost my train of thought. What was my second thing? Oh, I, yeah, here's the second thing. The other thing is sometimes when we see broken walls, we can be so critical and negative and judgmental that we don't have empathy or, or compassion for broken walls. And we forget that we have broken walls in our own life, and that God has compassion for us, and God has, um, has set forth a plan to restore us. So we need to always exercise compassion and empathy and not fall on that side where we look at different people and say, you're so messed up, you're beyond the help of God. I just want you to know nobody's beyond the help of God. Not one person. God is sovereign. If he can use Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, a godless ruler, he can change anybody. And for us to say that person or that situation is beyond the hope of God sets us above the Lord. And we don't ever want to do that. So that's kind of my cautionary thing about the walls. We remember we need to rebuild the walls, but we're not going to place that situation in a higher place than the Lord. Does that make sense? All right, so I am going to conclude tonight. I'm going to just um, end us in prayer. This is kind of like I said, this is my first of a series of Nehemiah. We'll probably do a three or four more sermons if you can hang in there. I love Nehemiah. There's a lot of lessons for us. We'll just kind of mine all that together, okay? So let's just pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you, for, um, thank you for the example of Nehemiah, God. Thank you, Lord, for his leadership, for his sacrifice, for his maturity, God. I pray, Lord, that we would look to this example and say, God, what have you called me to do? What's my call? What's my assignment? Break my heart for the things that break your heart, Lord. And let me be a rebuilder of the broken walls for the protection of the people and the glory of you, God. Thank you, Lord, for these people. In Jesus' name, amen.